Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast where we discuss research methods in action. In this episode, we talk with Christopher Wildeman, Associate Professor of Policy Analysis and Management at Cornell University. His research and teaching interests revolve around the consequences of mass imprisonment for inequality, with emphasis on families, health, and children. He's also interested in child welfare, especially as it relates to child maltreatment and the foster care system. Today we discuss his article on child maltreatment, which was published in Pediatrics. We discuss how he used an existing data set in a new way to reveal better estimates of this social problem. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. And we're going to talk about quantitative data analysis, and in particular, um, your method of using cumulative rather than annual estimates of a phenomenon. So kind of big picture, if you're going to introduce this method to a class who had never heard of it, um, how would you describe it? Um, So I think the, I mean, I think the basic idea is that most of the statistics that we have are based on either sort of annual rates or on sort of daily rates of experiencing some specific event. And so the the technique that I used, which is called the synthetic cohort life table, um, is basically just a way to say, based on one year's data, what proportion of folks could ever expect to experience an event at some point in their life on the basis of these age-specific rates from a from a year. The the place that this method is used all the time is for census estimates of life expectancy at birth. So so almost all of us at this point have have seen an application of the synthetic cohort life table um, to sort of data from one specific year. It's just that the census doesn't present it to us as doing synthetic cohort life tables and so the method feels sort of foreign. Got it. So uh, we're going to talk about a paper you recently published, which looks at uh, child maltreatment as a way for us as listeners to kind of understand what this uh, method would look like through an example. So, you know, what were your research questions for this project? And then what was the design that you employed? Sure. So, I mean, there were there were sort of two pretty basic, two or three, depending on how you want to think about it, pretty basic research questions. The first was just what proportion of children will ever have a confirmed maltreatment case between birth and their 18th birthday um, and and sort of the second and third which can be kind of tied are how large are the sex differences in this risk and then how large are racial ethnic disparities in this in this risk and, and so that was those were the basic sort of research questions that I was trying to answer the data that I used in sort of the research design I used was based primarily on um, data called the National Child Abuse and Neglect Data System, which is actually a data set that's housed here at Cornell in the National Data Archive on Child Abuse and Neglect, although I was still um, at Yale when I started this study. But the, the data basically give you information, de-identified information, just to be clear, on all children 
who came in contact with Child Protective Services in any year from 2004 until 2012. And it's, uh, so it tells you information about who made the complaint and whether, um, whether the, the report was confirmed, so whether CPS decided that maltreatment did actually occur, what type of maltreatment it was, and, you know, there's, of course, information on age and whether it was the first time they'd experienced maltreatment and race, ethnicity, and, and sex. So it's this really sort of rich population data set, but sociologists don't do much work on the child welfare system. And so um, it, it's something that would be unfamiliar, I think, especially to most sociologists. So what, did, what were sort of the core findings um, for this project? What, what were the answers to those questions? Yeah, so the so the I mean the the couple big take home messages from the article. So first and most surprising to me, although all my friends who have done worse research in the child welfare area for a long time think that this finding is not surprising in the least, um, is that the cumulative risk of um, child maltreatment or confirmed child maltreatment um, is very very similar for girls and boys, which. I found totally surprising. I, I, I'm not, in retrospect, 100% sure why I even found it surprising, but it was very surprising to me. Um, the, the second thing is that about 14 times more children will ever have a confirmed maltreatment case than have one in any given year. So about 0.8% of children had a confirmed maltreatment case in 2012, but according to our estimates, about 12% of children will ever have a confirmed maltreatment case at any point between their birth and their 18th birthday. So that's, um, you know, that's fully one in eight children, um, which is, which is just dramatically higher than, than I think anybody working in this area would have expected. Um, and then the, and then the the third big finding, I think, is that racial disparities in this risk are um, huge. Um, so for African-American children, between 20 and 25 percent will have a confirmed maltreatment case at any point between their birth and their 18th birthday, according to our estimates. Asian children have the, have the lowest cumulative risks at about 4 percent. And so there, and, and white children have risks that are about 10%. So there are these pretty dramatic racial disparities with African American children, especially likely to experience this event, although Native American children also experience it at a high rate. So about 15% of Native American children will have a confirmed maltreatment case at some point. Although in the article, that we're discussing today, there wasn't space to talk about any big picture sort of issues like this. I mean, you have about 3,000 words to convey, you know, a couple years of work in this case. Um, but, uh, but the, you know, the thing that I think is, is interesting for me as somebody who studies child welfare, but also is a criminologist, is that, so about 25% of African-American children will ever have their dad go to prison, and we spend um, a tremendous amount of time as sociologists trying to figure out what's driving that risk and how it affects children and all these other sorts of things. 
but the the cumulative risk of having a confirmed maltreatment case um, for African American children is almost identical. Yet, uh, you know, in sociology, we've essentially just ignored this whole sort of subfield. Wow. Yeah. No, it's true. When you were approaching these questions of really trying to get at kind of better estimates uh, by these different groups, did you consider other methodological approaches? Yeah, so there's so there's actually an alternate method that I'm using for a for a series of follow-up papers. And so so the thing that's kind of interesting about synthetic cohort life table methods is if you know the age-specific first event rates um, for every age in a given year, you can come up with this with this estimate. But synthetic cohort estimates are are pretty sensitive to yearly fluctuations in the in the risk of an event and so so people get a little concerned about how stable they are i mean in this paper we produced them for eight years and showed that there was a pretty high degree of stability so that's one way to deal with it but another way to deal with it is to follow a birth cohort over time and so we have a follow-up paper that we're about to submit for review that looks using a birth cohort design for all children born in 2004 that looks at what proportion of them will have ever had a confirmed child maltreatment case by the time they're eight, which is in the last year of data that we have. Ultimately, for this specific paper, we set on the synthetic cohort life table because we thought producing estimates to age 18 would have a certain power that producing estimates only to age eight wouldn't have, um, and and thought that it would maybe sort of put this issue more on people's map. But I, but I've also been thinking about doing these sort of follow up estimates using um, birth cohort life tables, which is you know just another demographic technique. And you know, thinking about this as a sociologist and a criminologist. How did this approach or this specific methodological choice fit in with the kind of bigger picture theoretical framing of your questions? I mean, I think, you know, the the thing that really made me think hard about it was that in this sort of field and the and the sort of specific methodological contribution I was trying to make is that in this specific field you have very, very low administrative estimates of the proportion of kids who experience an event in any given year. And then you have self-reported cumulative prevalence rates that are just astonishingly high. You know, 50 or 60 percent of kids reporting that they ever um, experienced a confirmed maltreatment case, or sorry, that they ever experienced maltreatment, not that they actually experienced a maltreatment case. But you know, some of that could be due to differences in reporting, right? One is an official administrative complaint that ends up going through the, the child welfare system, but then the other is based on self-reports and, you know, what being maltreated means to specific kids is going to differ and, um, you know, certainly there could be isolated incidents of maltreatment that didn't come to the attention of it, authorities. But then there's also this sort of life course perspective within sociology where you think not just about the point prevalence of estimates essentially but you also think about the cumulative prevalence of estimates and so what i was trying to do 
in this paper and my other work, my other descriptive work on child protective services and child welfare has been to take these demographic techniques and use them to show sociologists that child welfare contact is is a consistent enough event in children's lives that we can't ignore it anymore as sociologists. I mean, the other sort of broader theoretical perspective that I was trying to draw on would just, you know, I think there's this whole series of events that happen to kids, you know, and it could be things like parental incarceration. It could be things like housing instability. It could be things like having a parent die, you know, any of these sort of kind of extreme sources of childhood disadvantage. And I think we tend to think of these events as as quite rare. And, and looking at annual data, it looks like they're quite rare. But um, but I have a suspicion that a lot of these events happen to kids a lot more than we than we think. Let's talk a little more technically about, you know, this idea of having this data set, kind of how to work through secondary data analysis for students that are, are using approaches like this. So, so how do you get access to these data? And then how was this data set constructed? And kind of what was that sampling strategy behind it? Sure. Yeah, these are, I mean, these are great questions. So the thing that's really nice with, with the NCANS data is that they're publicly available through the National Data Archive on Child Abuse and Neglect. Um, you do need to go through an IRB process to get access to the data, um, but they're, they're pretty easy to get access to, to be honest, through the IRB. The other thing is that there's also a parallel data set that the Data Archive distributes called the Adoption and Foster Care Analysis and Reporting System, or the AFCARS data, and that's just on all kids who went through the foster care system in any given year. But the data restrictions on that data set are actually significantly lower than the data restrictions on confirmed maltreatment. And so I think for undergraduates who are interested in using those data, there's a, there's a pretty straightforward data request program that you can go through for the data archive and it's just wonderful folks who work there who make it very easy to deal with. Um, one one other thing I guess that, that I've found nice about working with these data and especially using these methods, working with them, is you know lots of data sets like Ad Health or Fragile Families or the Project on Human Development in Chicago Neighborhoods or the GSS or any of these other things, right? They have like a hundred gajillion variables. <laughs> and so just wrapping your head around what's going on in these data sets is really difficult if you're, you know, say working on them for a senior thesis or there's this really complex sampling design that you have to deal with. And the thing that's nice with the NCANS data and the AFCARS data is that they're actually pretty transparent data sets where there's one primary person at the data archive who's tasked with maintaining these data and hence very good at answering questions about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also not a sampling strategy because it's actually population data. And so you don't have to do any of the complex sort of baseline weighting or you know weighting to deal with non-random attrition that you'd have to do with a lot of these other longitudinal studies like the kids in the kids in the data set 
are all the kids who came in contact with Child Protective Services in the case of NCANs or who came in contact with the foster care system in the case of the AFCARs. And so I think that's something that, that's been really interesting for me about working with these data. I mean, I think the, I think the big challenge working with these data specifically is that even though all states report for the AFCARs and most states report for the NCANs, the quality of the data varies pretty significantly across states. And some of that has to do with, uh, I mean, I, I don't think any of it has to do with sloppiness on the part of the states or anything like that, but different states have different restrictions on exactly what caseworkers need to enter in a public server as they're, as they're going through their cases. Um, and then also different states have different restrictions on what they do and don't feel comfortable releasing to the folks at the Children's Bureau who um, end up putting this data set together. And so the, the thing in some ways that was hardest for me to make my way through is, you know, you think about this as a national data set, but it's actually a data set that's composed of 50 states in the District of Columbia. And, and so just thinking the way through how you make some of those coding decisions. So I think, you know, especially for students who are thinking about using data like these as some of the first data sets that they would use, I, I might think about focusing just on the data from the specific state that you grew up in or the state where your university is or, or these sorts of things because I think it, it's a lot easier to get a handle on that one state and feel like you can say something with confidence there. Yeah. Beyond the modes of reporting and state-level stuff, um, was there any other challenges that, that you and your co-authors faced in sort of making decisions about how to code or how to wade through a data set like this? So, I mean, develop, just developing the synthetic cohort lifetable code for this took um, my collaborator, Natalia Emanuel, who actually started working for me on this project when she was a sophomore in college. It took the two of us about 18 months of working pretty consistently on the code to getting it right. So I would say that everything was challenging (laughs) about the coding. Um, I mean, I think, you know, the really difficult decisions that, that we had to make were about how you deal with missing data on race and ethnicity. I mean, I think that ends up being a tremendously difficult thing to deal with. And then how you go back. So so for this specific analysis, in the data, there's an indicator that says whether the specific child was the person that the complaint was made against in, in the child welfare system. So whether it was the, the specific kid who was, who was um, alleged to have been maltreated that also tells you whether the maltreatment was confirmed and that tells you whether it was the child's first confirmed maltreatment. And so one of the things that we spent a tremendous amount of time digging through in the data and part of what took us so long to to get the estimates out was going back to data from subsequent years and linking up specific kids where where the 2012 data, for instance, said that it was the first confirmed maltreatment case 
but actually going back to 2011 and making sure we didn't see those kids and going back to 2010. So those were, um, those were some of the big challenges. We've since been doing um, even more of that because we're working on state and county level estimates as well now and um and some of those numbers are are so high that we've felt the need to check and check and check and check and check but i mean i think those were the i mean i think those were the big things i I guess one thing i've learned from this project which might be helpful to folks that i guess i hadn't thought about all that much before but you know Natalia was working on her senior thesis and you know doing this and doing that and I was um, working on other papers and teaching and you know had a kid at some point when this paper was moving along and so there were a whole bunch of times where we put down the code for you know six weeks or whatever and then picked it back up and I haven't historically done that historically when I've been doing data analysis I've just focused almost exclusively on that and tried to just neglect everything else to the best of my ability, um, which we as academics are usually pretty good at. But uh, but this is the first time that I'd really put code down and then picked it back up. And it just, it, it really made it clear to me how important documenting your code well is so that when you when you go back, the startup costs are, are pretty low. I mean, I know that all of us are taught to document our code really well, and and so this isn't something unique to say, but I guess I just hadn't I hadn't realized how costly it was for a work in progress to have, you know, A minus quality documentation on the code. Because <laughs> it's just it's a very different thing to go back to a published article and then try to figure your way through the code. Because you just expect that to take a while. But with this, that was a that was a big thing I noticed. When we think um, sort of big picture about research projects and when we teach methods, we talk about generalizability and validity. So how did you and your co-authors think about that um, using kind of this unique data set? I mean, we weren't particularly concerned about generalizability because we had population data. And so, I mean, I think that was one of the things that all of us were really excited about um, when we came to this project. And we were especially excited about because of the Native Americans in the data set. So, I mean, uh, with the existing child welfare databases beyond um, these two, you can't get a stable estimate for anything for Native Americans just because there are too few in the sample. And so we weren't that worried about generalizability. I mean, the, the big sort of concern we had in terms of reliability or internal validity or, or however you want to think about it was this information on whether it was the child's first confirmed maltreatment case. And and that's, you know, within the constraints of the data that we had available, I think we feel like we did our due diligence and checked and rechecked and rechecked. And if anything, our estimates are going to conservatively, are going to give us conservative estimates of the cumulative risk of having a confirmed maltreatment case. But the big thing that we were concerned about um, was this issue of whether we were correctly measuring whether it was the kid's first confirmed maltreatment case or not. And, and so that's the, that's the thing that we ended up really fixating on as we were 
going through and doing all of our checks. You know, we often ask um, our interviewees about their own kind of relative position to this project. And, you know, one thing I was kind of thinking about with you is you're a sociologist, criminologist, and you're publishing in, you know, more of a medical environment. So is there anything about sort of your professional role or your positionality um, towards this project that was interesting for you? You know, for me, doing a whole bunch of this work, of the sort of work I do, which is, you know, mostly on pretty severely marginalized populations um, or sort of hidden populations, I guess. A lot of that work is based on feeling like I should have been doing something more useful with my life, like being a social worker. Um, and so, you know, I often think that that this work is a way, I, I would be a terrible social worker. Um, I just, I would struggle to to differentiate from my uh, clients at all, and it, it'd be a total disaster. Um, and so part of what, I mean, part of what I try to do with this work is to think about, you know, my research subjects in this case as being clients that I'd want to see served well um, and showing how much more of a social problem this is than we think it is as, as being a really... Um, as being a really good way um, to think about it. The, uh, you know, the second thing, and it, it might be related in some ways to the first, but it's hard to look at specific kids' files, even de-identified, even with very little information on the specifics of the maltreatment that they experienced, but it's hard to follow some of these kids through time in the data and not think that there's something pretty wrong with the way um, we're approaching things or that there are things that we need to be thinking about doing a lot better um, than we are. That's not to say that um, caseworkers aren't doing a great job. I think caseworkers are doing the best job that they can be. It's not to say that um, you know, the Children's Bureau isn't doing everything they should be because I, um, you know, I have profound respect for them too. But, you know, in, in a data set like this, you'll see the same kid experience the same type of maltreatment two, three, four, seven times within a given year at the hands of the same person and have it be confirmed every time, but then the kid never ends up in foster care. And so that's, I mean, I think that's been the sort of thing that's um, that's drawn me into the drawn me into the data a little bit more, and made me, you know, sort of think about um, what the point is. I mean, I think, I guess the I, maybe there are three things. I've never been that good with you know keeping points straight, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but I have tenure now, so I guess it's okay. <laughs> um, but like, you know, I mean, I think one of the things I thought and before I, so before I moved to Cornell, I was at Yale in the social department for four years and really liked that, but felt really, really pressured to hit an American Journal of Sociology or American Sociological Review, which, you know, are the two sort of flagship journals in the discipline and, um, you know, ultimately did what I needed to do to make folks there happy in that regard, but, um, you know, one of the things that 
really focusing in on writing this very narrow sort of paper because it was something that I felt like I needed to do professionally did for me was just made me realize that I was never going to write a paper like that again unless it was the right paper to to write. And so, you know, if there's if there's something that's that should really appear in a top generalist sociology journal that I'm working on, I'll try to I'll try to do that. Or if god forbid I have a student who I'm working with who really needs to publish in a place like that, then I'm obviously going to do the practical things for my for my student, but I think the, you know, I think the thing that my experience, you know, going through the tenure process kind of drove home to me and that led to me publishing in places like JAMA Pediatrics is that I want to put my work in the place where it's most relevant to get published for the debates that are going on. And pediatricians and and JAMA Pediatrics and Pediatrics, which is the other big um, journal that pediatricians read, tend to be the places that the the most high profile conversations about these issues are are happening and and where the debate um, where you can sort of shape the debate in the most profound way and so now I just send you know like this paper now I just send stuff to a whole bunch of random places which is probably I mean slightly less impractical than doing it pre tenure but slightly more impractical than doing it pre full <laughs> but you know it is what it is. Yeah, and, you know, you kind of actually um, began to answer my next question, which is, you know, how do you think about audience? And maybe not even, you know, this particular paper, but but when you're thinking about all these different homes where this research can go in terms of journals, um, you know, how does that thought process about audience shape the way that you then kind of write up your results? Or, or, or how do you kind of decide what findings are going to go into what sort of venue? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, uh, so it, it really depends on whether I'm taking the lead or not. So I, I mean, I only apply my, um, my sort of rules on these things to papers that I'm taking the lead on just because I think, you know, other people have different things that they need and are at different career stages, have a different set of preferences, um, or whatever. And so I only, I only try to, impose this on the work that I do. Um, I mean, I tend, I tend to only send things to sociology, um, demography or criminology journals now when I don't think I could make the point more concisely for a broader audience, which isn't to say that I don't want to publish in those places. I'm sure I'll get a slew of R&Rs rejected after saying this or something. Although, hopefully no editors are listening to this. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think there are papers where the sort of longer theoretical argument or the series of robustness checks or the the implications for the field really need to be spelled out, either because they're opaque or because they're a bunch of assumptions that you're making that that you really need to be straightforward with. Um, or it, you know, contributes to this really sort of core debate 
in sociology or demography or criminology and needs to be in those places to contribute to what's going on. But if it's a broader research area that I'm trying to advance, you know, like encouraging people to pay more attention to child welfare, um, and it's a point that I can make concisely and with a couple really pretty figures that one of my RAs who's way smarter than me makes, then that's where those, that's where those go. And so if there's, if there's a 3,500 word version of something that's gonna, um, it's gonna make the same, have the same impact, if not greater impact, then it goes to a general science journal or, a, or, a um, you know, or a public health journal, um, or to the sort of place that publishes research notes. I mean, one of the, one of my, um, one of my frustrations with a lot of the, you know, big sort of social demography, criminology kind of journals is that only a select few of them publish research notes at all. And so, you know, I, I tend not to send these more concise pieces to places like that. But I think that's sort of how I, you know, that's sort of how I think about it. Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, no conversation about our research would be complete without discussing the limitations. So what were some of the limitations you kind of had to deal with or think through, um, either with these data as they were or in sort of the analytical approach? Yeah, so I mean, I think you know the missing data on race ethnicity is a was a was a big concern for us, um, and something that we, you know, agonized over quite a bit. I think, you know, it's it's really hard with anything like this to know how you treat the multiracial population in the in the U.S. and um, ultimately we ended up doing a lot of lumping <laughs> in, you know, ways that we probably wouldn't have if we'd just been doing state-specific analyses. But, you know, um, kids who are half Hispanic and half Native American, for our analysis, end up predominantly getting lumped in as Native American. And, you know, I mean, these, these sorts of textured distinctions especially when you get down to the state level or the county level, end up being pretty consequential for how you think about cumulative prevalence. So we struggled with, you know, we struggled with that a bit. I mean, I think we all really worried about this issue of how well we were capturing whether it was the first confirmed maltreatment case or not. And um, I'm very good friends with the guy who... who um, deals with these data at Cornell, Michael Deneen. Um, he's a good family friend. And so, you know, I bugged him and bugged him and bugged him to the point of exhaustion about this. But that was still, you know, that was still something that we'd worried about. But, I mean, the other, you know, the other big limitation, and, and people get, as they should, people in sociology especially get a little testy about this, but we're looking at maltreatment, theoretically, that occurs that comes to the attention of Child Protective Services. The Child Protective Services opts to launch a full investigation into, and then the Child Protective Services 
determines that the maltreatment did actually occur. And so we're sort of at the fourth stage in this process. And how you talk about racial disparities in maltreatment within that context is really hard, right? Because we try to be very careful to, to say confirmed maltreatment and to be really clear about um, what's going on in these data. But, you know, the reality is that we don't know how big the racial disparities in actual maltreatment are. We know how big the racial disparities in CPS-confirmed maltreatment are. And, and I think, it, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty big limitation and something that we've tried to address and that we're struggling with. But I think those are, those are the big issues. I mean, I, you know, I guess the final issue to mention is, so I, you know, I mean, I'm a demographer now. Everything I do is demographic pretty much, but um, uses boring techniques like these. But the, um, you know, like I was, I was trained as um, an ethnographer initially in grad school and did a bunch of interview-based work after I decided being an ethnographer seemed really hard. And, you know, one of the things that's hard with these data sets of 12 million observations is you can get to know the data really, really well relative to anybody else who's using the data, but you're never going to know, you're never going to know the data as perfectly as you could with something where it's a smaller number of observations. And so, you know, I mean, I think it's just something, something to struggle with. Um, but, you know, these are all all things that I'm going to address in my next research project. Right, of course. Um, so for anyone who wants to pursue either the specific method for a different question or use these data, is there any other practical details or kind of tricks of the trade, any advice you would give to, to a student or a colleague? I mean, honestly, the big, you know, the big, the big thing I would tell people and that I tell people all the time who are thinking about, um, looking at thinking about these methods is Herman Rodriguez, um, who's at Princeton. If you Google Herman Rodriguez, Princeton, this will come up on his website has a series of lecture notes where he explains synthetic cohort life tables and sample code where he, he walks you through how to, how to do it with a, a simple, straightforward mortality example. And I just, I mean, I, I couldn't encourage anyone strongly enough to go see the way he thinks through things. Because um, all, all of the demographic techniques I really learned from him when I was in graduate school, and um, I just think he's the most precise and, and clear person about all of, these, all of these things, even though he's essentially an applied biostatistician, so he also says a lot of stuff that's so close to being spoken in math that I don't understand it at all. Um, but I think he's the, he's the person that I would really go to for, for these things. That's a great tip. Thank you for that. And so, you know, our final question is just, um, you know, if you kind of were going to sell this method and this approach, you know, what, what are the main advantages that we should walk away from this interview kind of um, keeping in our heads? The main advantage is that <laughs> it is an incredibly simple, straightforward, descriptive method where you don't have to fight with anybody about what's causal and what isn't, but that nobody knows how to do. 
So when I published this paper, nobody in the child welfare field, with a with a very small number of exceptions, actually believed that you could do what I did with the data that we had available. But if you showed any demographer these data, they'd know you could do it, I mean, literally within 45 seconds. And so I think, you know, the beauty of the method is it's, simplicity and that you don't have to fight with anybody about whether it's causal or not. Yeah, I like that. Well, Chris, thank you so much for for joining us today and, and kind of walking us through this project. Really appreciate it. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having me. On behalf of me, Kyle Green, and my co-producer, Sarah Logison, thank you for listening. And remember, please, give methods a chance.